say, uh, by way of clarification, that uh, just because I gave you this book doesn't mean that I agree with every word that O. Palmer Robertson says, but from what I've read so far, I agree in general with what he's saying. Um, so feel free to disagree, discuss, ask questions. Um, this is not necessarily like our men's studies where we'd have before where I would teach for 80% of the time and then y'all would talk a little. I want us to discuss as we go uh, as best as you are um, able and led. Uh, so again, any questions, uh, if you had any questions during your reading, please don't hesitate to bring those up. Uh, but let's read, I'll read Galatians 6 verse 12 to 17. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh... They constrain you, you Galatians, to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, or a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus." Amen. So let's just walk through these verses really quick. Uh, Paul is dealing with uh, what is known with the Galatian heresy, uh, which was more or less a uh, return to um, not the Mosaic law in general, but the ceremonial law in particular, right? That uh, they were to, if you really want to have the full experience of God, kind of like we've been dealing with in Colossians, if you want to have the full experience of God, you need these additional mediators, Colossians. But here, if you want to have the full experience of God in, in Galatia, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow these laws. Um, and remember what Paul says back in uh, chapter 4, uh, no, chapter 3, uh, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you, right? So he's calling them foolish, that they are not obeying the truth and uh, denying the gospel by this false teaching and this uh, heresy. But you see it's rooted in circumcision. It's rooted in the ceremonial law. And by that, we can say that it is rooted in Judaism, right? Um, it is rooted in a way that had passed away. Uh, and O. Palmer Robertson gets into that. And he says that, uh, like, you know, in verse 13, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law. So these false teachers, they're not actually obeying the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Kind of like uh, that they could give themselves a pat on the back because they had led another one astray, basically as false teachers like to do. They count nickels and noses. Um, but he says, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Christ. And then he gets into uh, the 
the main verses that O. Palmer Robertson deals with at the beginning of our reading. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation or a new creature. Right? So the times in which circumcision and non-circumcision mattered have passed. Right? That was the case for uh, Paul in the first century and the church that he was uh, addressing here, and it's by implication the case for us today. We haven't gone backwards in redemptive history since then. We've gone forwards, building on the apostles and their teaching. So what he's saying is right, we're no longer living in the old way of things. It is no longer that time. And that informs the way we should understand verse 16 and I think O. Palmer Robertson does a good job of explaining this, that when he uses the phrase, the Israel of God, he's not talking about those who are circumcised in the flesh. He's talking about the true people of God. Right? And that basis, like you, I'm, I'm hoping and assuming that all of you read the Bible in this way, but when you see how the New Testament interprets the Old, it really gives you a better understanding of the old when you read through it again, right? Um, because we can read through the Old Testament because a lot of us have been raised in dispensational-type thinking, right? That the Old Testament is about one people and the New Testament is about another people, but that's not the case. The imagery that Paul uses that Bo was talking about earlier in Romans uh, about there being one tree, not two, right? There is one people of God, that has been manifested in two different ways, but we are in the second way, as it were, or the promised way, the one that was promised from the beginning. For remember that Abraham was promised to be a father of many nations, not just one. Right? So even as far back as Abraham, you had this uh, implication that God was going to take his salvation to the nations. So the Israel of God... Um, don't think of Israel there as a place of geography, but think of it as the special name that God has given his people. Right? Israel is a name that God assigned to his people. There were others that occupied that name in the past, but only those who have faith in Christ, or as Paul says earlier in Galatians, only those who are children of Abraham by faith, are those who share in that name, right? So when he says in the first half of verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them in mercy, um, I take that to mean uh, an address directly to the Galatians, right? As many of y'all who decide to walk according to this rule, peace be upon you and mercy, but also upon the Israel of God as well, meaning everyone else out there who is walking in faith, right? The rest of the church as well. Uh, this is not foreign to Paul's language. Um, he would very often, like in 1 Corinthians, when he's speaking about uh, head coverings and whatnot, uh, he talks about their church in chapter 11, but then he also says, we know of no other practice in the churches of God. So Paul, more than, on more than one occasion, addresses the church broadly, and this is just him speaking in a way that God has spoken in the past. So that provides a, just kind of an argument or a basis for our discussion uh, to start with. So 
that's kind of the beginning of the reading where he deals with who is the Israel of God, how that relates to the land, and then uh, the second part of our reading was really all about Melchizedek. Uh, so I open it up to y'all. Um, what thoughts did you have in your reading? What questions uh, do you have? Um, as you're kind of coming up with that, uh, I'm looking at just page 41 here. Um, <clears throat> I gave you the theological argument, basically, for why the Israel of God means what it means, um, what the true understanding of that is. But it's important to grasp what O. Palmer Robertson says as well, that Paul would literally contradict himself if he meant ge uh, genealogical Israel or geographical Israel, uh, if that was what he was saying there, because he just said circumcision and uncircumcision no longer matters. So, yeah. Uh, funny thing about the circumcision part of that is cutting right. The whole point behind that is, is if you break the commandments, that you're cut off. So every single person of the Jewish descent broke the covenant. Mm -hmm. Period. Right. They should have been cut off. Right. we talked about this some last time in Romans 2 um, he says a true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly right pointing to the fact that it was always a matter of the heart um, and in Jeremiah I forget the chapter uh, the Lord calls on them to circumcise their hearts right so that was pointed to even in the prophets um, you have in Romans 4 uh, the fact that Abraham's circumcision was a seal. It was not his faith, per se, right? That he believed apart from circumcision. And then the circumcision was given to him as a seal of the righteousness of faith so that he could be the father both of the circumcised and the uncircumcised, right? The nations as well. So, yeah, and that the imagery of circumcision, I'm glad you bring that up, is it, it points to the need for the shedding of blood, but it also points to exactly what you're saying there, that this shows that you are in your sin cut off. Right? That that's what your sin means. Why that skin had to be cut off and show that imagery. That you are cut off in your sin, and the only way you can be restored is through one who is cut off in an even greater sense. Right? Which fills up Colossians 2, the circumcision of Christ, which is the cross. So, yeah, good point. What else? <clears throat> I like what he said on page 43. Mm -hmm. The third paragraph, um, Paul declares that the new creation, the new community within humanity, brought into existence by the cross of Christ and its uniting of Jews and Gentiles into one new people of God, the, the community that may be designated as the Israel of God, combined into one body, 
they represent all those who refuse to dis distinguish between the Jew and Gentile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And that also helps us, uh, this principle also helps us understand in Galatians, uh, what is it, Galatians uh, 4, I think, no, Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? This also points to the fact that this is a, that's a heavenly matter, right? Um, so with respect to salvation, with respect to heavenly inheritance in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile anymore. There is no male or female, right? There's not a, um, there's not a gradation. Somebody with keys. There's not a gradation in salvation or participation in it or anything like that. Uh, but outwardly, those things do remain, right? We are still very much male and female. And by implication, we are still very much Jew or Greek or Gentile. We are either in one thing or in the other. But when it comes to Christ and the inheritance and salvation, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, so the, the reason that's important is because and uh, Robertson doesn't address this, so I'm not saying he's wrong. But there is a sense where these things outwardly do continue, right? That heaven doesn't do away with them, is what I'm saying. Right? Otherwise, the egalitarians are right in saying that women can serve as pastors because there's no longer male nor female, right? Well, if there's still gender, then there's also still race, Right? All those things still exist in the, the natural sense. Right? Um, and that's, that's an important qualification to make when you're talking about these things because uh, a lot of people have done some weird stuff with it. Um, because if you still have male and female outwardly, if you still have bond and free outwardly, then by implication, you still have Jew and Greek, outwardly, or Jew and Gentile. Right? So think about how Paul does not tell masters to go set all their servants free. Right? He tells them to remain in those situations, to remain as you were called. Right? So again, the male-female remains. We're still all one in Christ. The bond and free remains. We're still one in Christ. The Jew and Gentile remains. We're still one in Christ. So what Paul is dealing with is heavenly matters. Right? Matters that relate to eternal salvation. And again, the only logical conclusion to making this apply to everything would be to say that the egalitarians are right. Yeah? Also and true. Club, just like the woman. There's mm -hmm. the circumcision is of the heart, so it's no longer just a boy's club. Right. Um, as far as the flesh. Yeah. And and also to prove that this is a heavenly matter that relates specifically to worship in particular, is if you think about how worship was conducted based on those three categories in the Old Testament. 
was your racial standing, your societal standing, and your gender standing or sex standing. Right? All of those three things determined what level you participated in the worship of God in. But in the New Testament, that's no longer the case. Those things still remain outwardly in what we might call the, the temporal or the earthly kingdom, but internally or heavenly, they no longer matter because we can fully participate in that worship. Um, so a Jewish Christian, Christian, Messianic Jew, those, today, those two things are different. Yeah. A Jewish Christian and a Messianic Jew. What's... Well, let's just understand that. Um, see, I think... Um, At least in my understanding, they're different. I would say you can't be... You're, you're Jewish culturally. Right. Or racially. You're cult, racially. Right. right. But you're a believer in Christ. You, 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 you... I mean, you could still maybe more in-depth appreciate some of the Jewish customs and heritage and things like that. Just like maybe Paul is a good example of that, right? Because mm -hmm. he kept all those... those uh, he had he had kept all those traditions there, but he considered it loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Right. And and even today, I would think if you're a Jewish person, you're that culturally, racially, but you're not. But if you're a believer in Christ, you are a Christian. For all practical yeah. purposes, if they got to get it beyond their lips, I'm a Christian. Yeah, so the distinction I would draw, and I'm, I'm agreeing with you, though. I'm just add, I'm adding to it. Um, there are those who claim to be messianic, is the title that they like to use, okay. and they still believe that all of the Old Testament things are required. But even though Christ has come. Now, that would be erroneous and dangerous to one's faith, I would say to say that they are required, okay? If you say they're optional, that's a different discussion. Unless you're trying to say that the sacrifices are also optional, then you're really far afield. But I'm speaking of people who like to, say, celebrate Passover. You're free in Christ to do that. But you're not free in Christ to act as if the fullness of Passover has not come or that it's required. Right? Kind of like what we were getting at in Colossians uh, this past Sunday. But also, um, it's important to see that in the New Testament, when all this was written, they were in a transition period. Right. So when Paul talks about not judging a brother based on days, you keep one day, I keep another, we're in Christ for free, the temple was still standing. Now that the temple's been torn down, you technically can't keep some of those things, right? Mm -hmm. You can kind of say you are, but you're not actually keeping them. The priesthood's done away with, but there was a, a uh, what's the word, um, like a, a intermediate period where the old covenant was still sort of standing, though Christ had come, but now we live in the time since the temple's been destroyed that the old covenant has totally passed away. Remember in the book of Hebrews, he brings this up, mm -hmm. that these things are passing away, right? Well, when did they pass away? I would argue, and I think he does too, that they passed away fully with the destruction of the temple to show that they're gone. 
right? They were fulfilled in Christ, but God in his patience gave them, as Jesus says in the Gospels, a generation, right? A 40-year period-ish to work it out. But after that, uh, that, that special, um, if, if you say Jewish, uh, we need to merely mean ethnically. Because you cannot follow what is technically the Jewish faith and be a Christian. Because the way the Bible uses the term Jew is they're the rejectors of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? Those who continue to maintain that name, basically. Right. So, yeah. And when you talk, even when you talk about like Jews today, the branch of Judaism that actually reads and uses the Old Testament is quite small. Mm-hmm. They use the Talmud, mm-hmm. which is, oh. It's a whole different, well, you it's studied it, right? Steve, you studied some more about some of this stuff, right, in your school? Like, like rabbinical literature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't really study... Uh, no. Yeah. The Old Testament, as much as like it, it's an offshoot. It's a it's been, modern Judaism is quite <laughs> off the mark. Mm-hmm. I guess they dig tunnels. Three Johnson made a comment. Um, he he had uh, he had debated he had debated a rabbi, mm. and he he was he came away from the debate really kind of uh, shell-shocked because he he was just amazed at his ignorance of the of his ignorance of the scriptures mm-hmm. you know now he could defend the rabbinical writings really well and I mean that's what he mastered in but but uh, Bonson said the guy knew nothing about scripture mm-hmm. I mean it was uh, uh, it wasn't much of a challenge for him he was a master debater. Oh, he was. But, but <laughs> he really still, was. Um, you know, I like the line about Bonson was that, <clears throat> you know, when he was when he was still alive, it was really really hard to find people to debate him. But as soon as he died, there was a line as long as you can imagine. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh. All right. Uh, so let's keep going. Um, I think we're beginning to see, unless O. Palmer Robertson does a really switcheroo at the end, uh, I don't think that he holds to a future conversion of ethnic Jews um, because the new covenant principle that's ended the distinction between Jew and Gentile has already come to be, unless he you know, kind of flip-flops on that. I don't see how you can say that and then 
revert back to saying, well, there's going to be a time in the future that those things are restored for a moment. But um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, so on page 45, he, he uses a good word, um, transfer. Uh, the last full paragraph on page 45, he says, the drama associated with the, this redefinition of the Israel of God now becomes even more apparent. Paul, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the learned Jewish Pharisee, the one steeped in the traditions of Judaism, transfers the customary benediction of Israel to the universal church of Jesus Christ, the new Israel of God. That's a pretty good way to put it. Um, then, when he starts talking about the relation of various peoples to the land of promise today, I thought that was interesting. How he went, oh, sorry, how he went through those things. So, on the flip side of the benediction, there is an implied curse there as mm -hmm. well. Because there are those who still make distinction between Jews and Gentiles based on circumcision. And the curse is placed on them because of their legalism. Mm -hmm. Because a true Israelite, like I was discussed earlier, a true Israelite is one who is a new creation in heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And that's, uh, that's also a way to um, kind of work through the book of Revelation uh, where you have these, these people that are being cut off by Christ um, and that they're those who reject him in the first century. Uh, I mean, you can hold to a partial preterist or either like a, a more idealist position where you kind of see it fulfilled cyclically or repeatedly throughout history. Um, but those who would have been falling under those judgments in the first century um, would have been those legalists, right? those who insisted on a certain way. Um, so, yeah. Uh, the relation of various peoples to the land of promise today, starting on page 46. Um, I, I thought what he did with this was, was pretty good. Um, he deals with it almost exclusively in, in terms of salvation. Uh, but, uh, so first, people who are only externally related to God's redemptive covenant. So this first group is those who profess Christ but are not born again. Right? Uh, and notice, <laughs> it's so funny, the, the people that he lists there. Liberal Protestants the Roman Catholic Church, or the various Eastern Orthodox churches. Uh, it's, it's almost like he's sounding none of those people are born again, which would be quite the statement. Um, but he does say they might even belong to evangelical churches and not be new creations in Christ. He makes this point because of what he said earlier, um, and I think we covered this last time, but he says this... It's connected to the idea that the whole earth is promised to believers, right? So on that basis, I think he's drawn out this first category here that anybody who's a Christian who lives in that place has some kind of, uh, even if they're not born again, an external relation to that because of the promise of God to believers, right? Uh, in the Beatitudes, right? Uh, you'll inherit the earth. Right, that kind of thing. I think that's what he's drawing on this first category. Uh, the second category is those who, uh, I, I thought he handled this really good. Um, 
person, this on page 47, the first full paragraph, second category of persons related externally to the covenant would be Jews who today claim a covenant relationship with God on the basis of the old covenant administration. Uh, to me, that would be uh, almost to a man, the people who are fighting right now uh, in the Middle East. Uh, he says they regard the covenant that God made with Abraham as still valid in the form in which it was originally administered. Do they have a legitimate claim to the land of the Bible? Then in the next uh, skip down a paragraph, a major problem with this position is that other people have been present in this land, claiming it as their own, particularly since it had been it had belonged to their families through previous generations. So notice he puts them in uh, this first category that they are possibly, if at all, only externally related to God's redemptive covenant. But he says, I, I think his answer is, they're not externally related to it. Right? They have no claim to make uh, to the land based on Abraham. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to say was Jews in the physical land still lay claim, lay claim to it because they're blinded, willingly or not, to the future reality it signifies and still claim to the typological old covenant promises. And the reality is that the possession of the land we see now doesn't really matter when the true Israel is to inherit the new heaven and earth at the final consummation. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, when you're speaking... And, and this is the way he's speaking too, I think, uh, <coughs> that any claim on the land based on the Old Covenant is null and void, right? Because the Old Covenant, one, is fulfilled in Christ, and two, if you reject Christ, you weren't actually in the Old Covenant. You were cast off and cut away. So it was never yours to begin with. That is in the, the covenantal category, the salvific category. I do think there's an interesting discussion to be had uh, because, yes, land is promised to the people of God, new heavens and new earth, we will inherit all things. But that doesn't mean that I don't own the land where I live. Right? Right, but you know what I'm saying, right? Right. Uh, the people who live there, and I would argue the people who have lived there, that they have generational establishment and all those things, that it is theirs, right? It is their land. They have the right to self-defense. However, that claim based upon the old covenant is not the proper claim to make, right? Um, so I don't, I can't walk across the street and steal my neighbor's property because God has promised the earth to me, right? Even worse would be somebody who tries to use the old covenant in an unfaithful way to lay claim to land that is not theirs in that way. However, we're talking heavenly sense there, but naturally, or where Jew and Greek still remain externally, that is a different discussion. Okay, so were you the remnant that the Lord left in the land whenever the rest of you were kicked out? Right. And if you weren't, then... Yeah. 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 Y
I will say, uh, if you've ever heard of Wilhelmus of Brockel, uh, some guys from the Reformation that were not dispensationalists that argued that there was going to be a future return of ethnic Jews to Israel. Uh, that's a very minority position, uh, but it has been present uh, in the Reformed world. And that's, that's separate from, it's, it's kind of bound up with it, but it's an additional issue to whether there will be a future conversion of ethnic Jews. But, uh, yeah. Jews and Gentiles have the same opportunity We'll say opportunity. The same priority of election according to the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. dwelling in them. Therefore, there are Jews that are converted, coming to Christ. You know, praise God. And so that is a future conversion. Um, and so if you look at how many have come to Christ, and as you said last time, that all those that were in Jerusalem whenever the Spirit descended, that was a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And so there was, you know, that. And then there were more added each day in Acts. And so, it's not that the Jews are, oh, well, they can't get saved. It's, they're just no better, no worse. They have the equal opportunity with the drug dealer down the street or the a moral, you know, businessman. Then the second category gets into page 49, people who are internally related to God's redemptive covenant. Um, And that's where he connects it to whether you're Jew or Gentile, that the land promise is in the context of the new covenant, etc., etc. Jewish Christians should recognize that Gentile Christians can equally claim the promises of God and we've already kind of sort of talked about that. Then he talks about in the third category, people who are unrelated to God's redemptive covenant, um, where he speaks of secularists, Muslims, and adherents of other non-Christian religions. These people also put forward a claim to the land or to portions, their community, their family, their work. And then he he finally brings in the civil matters. Um, And I think... He was right to do that. I don't love the way he explains it on the next page, uh, but I'm okay with him saying uh, that it is a civil matter about who owns what piece of land and that the Jews have no special claim to the place called Israel today based on the Old Covenant. That much I'll say he's right. All right. So let's talk about uh, Melchizedek. Um, somebody who is mentioned only three times in the Bible, uh, but serves such a tremendous role uh, in teaching us about Christ, his priesthood, and God's promises. Uh, talk to me about your reading on Melchizedek. point, I believe, is that Melchizedek's ministry as a priest king in the absence of his death record all point to the permanent priesthood and kingship of Christ. Mm-hmm. Not only that, Levi was subordinate to Melchizedek by implication, which points forward 
to Christ's priesthood being superior to Levi's. Not only that, the Father himself swore by an oath to Christ that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which has three implicit benefits for us. Uh, that it would be better than Levi's. That the priesthood would never be transferred or lost in any way. And that our faith would be strengthened by the oath, since oaths aren't necessary within the Trinity. Mm -hmm. The oath was more or less made for us, not for Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that goes back to, uh, what is it, the end of Hebrews 6, uh, where he brings in the Abrahamic covenant before he starts talking about Melchizedek, how God, he could swear by none greater, so he swore by himself, not as if he needed to, but for our sake. So, And Melchizedek, I don't, I don't remember him saying this, maybe I just skimmed over it, but Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah. I was probably falling asleep at that point. <laughs> uh, I fell asleep reading last night. So, uh, But yeah, that's important to know because that, uh, a lot of people make a, a claim, and I don't remember him making this argument directly. Maybe he implied it, uh, that Melchizedek is a basically a pre-incarnate Christ. Some people make that claim. Um, I don't necessarily think that. I think he was a type of Christ, um, and Christ is the antitype, right? Melchizedek was the shadow. Christ is the reality. Um, but uh, all those things that uh, James Dean brings up are, are super important um, and definitely a good summary of, of what he argues here uh, and explains about uh, Melchizedek uh, let's see. Um, I thought it was interesting that he said that basically the, I'm, I don't know if I'm getting his wording right. I can't remember where it was, but basically that Melchizedek and the argument around him is the chief argument in the book of Hebrews. Right? And just the profound implications of that, because he's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. He's the central issue in Hebrews, which makes sense because Hebrews is all about priesthood, right? And Jesus' priesthood is, in some sense, connected to Levi, but in an even greater sense, connected to Melchizedek. Yeah? I think that's kind of why we have to look at it as a Christophany mm -hmm. and not say it was a man. Sure. Because it doesn't, it doesn't pan out in any other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, whoever he was, he was greater than Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> yep. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing also that it's kind of like an interlude almost in the, the middle of the Genesis account, basically. Where I mean, I, I didn't read the section of where Obama Roberts is taking the idea of Melchizedek at all. So I don't know, but. You know, you see Lot kind of taken captive, and then you see Abraham like coming and meeting with Melchizedek before he goes on like this rescue mission, basically. And then not only that, but in the midst of this, yes, he pays homage to him, things like that. He does, you know, pay him tithes and things like that. But then also Melchizedek brings forth 
to the table red wine. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's kind of like this prefiguring of the Lord's Supper for us. Mm -hmm. That that uh, heavenly food, that mm -hmm. heavenly bread and wine, mm -hmm. prefigured in the old covenant times, mm -hmm. according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Yeah. So that's, um, it's, you know, Abraham kind of like embarking on this this mission, stopping for a moment mm -hmm. to kind of have like this to prepare himself, if you will. A moment of leisure, yeah. as it were. Amen. If you were at the men's breakfast. That's <laughs> leisure. Anything else? There was a, something that we talked about in adult Sunday school in Colossians this past Sunday morning. And uh, something I'd never noticed. Um, it, it makes sense, but I'd never really noticed it in reading through Colossians 2, that Paul explicitly ties uh, going back to the Old Testament shadows with man-made religion. Right? That he says that you're following... The traditions and commandments of men, right? Which has a weird implication because there was a time when that was not the case, right? But if you go back to it, you're following the traditions and commandments of men because the reality has come. Christ the head has taken his seat, as it were. Yeah. Even though the old covenant is inspired by God, I think when I think about it, and I hear you talking about them returning to the religion of men, it's designated as a religion of men only because people are still trying to worship God in their own way, right, right. and not in the way that is prescribed in the new covenant scriptures. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right, and when you do that, when you perform any form, because um, that's idolatry, that's what it is, a violation of the first commandment, um, and the second, and the third, <clears throat> and the fourth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but when you do that, right, that, that is what all false worship is. It is idolatry. It is following the traditions and commandments of men, um, which is, it makes things like certain forms of dispensationalism so interesting. Blasphemous, but interesting. Um, that there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple that God has promised this 
and that it serves some salvific purpose, that it's going to have an actual efficacy to bring these people back to Christ. What in the world? It's just like, what? Like, why would Christ, or why would the Lord in the Scriptures promise a rollback? Right? Doesn't make any sense. That's right. Yeah, that was one of the things I was thinking of when, you know, when he was going through his exegesis of Hebrews 7, is I was just thinking, what is the point for the for the dispensationalists to make such a big fuss about um, uh, the restoration of the priesthood, the rebuilding of the temple? I know that Hebrews 7 is in their Bible. And... I mean, I was just thinking about that. No, it's, and uh, the hysteria that people have over the events. And uh, let me tell you this. I mean, I, I hope y'all have grasped this so far. But with all of the implications and whatnot for national Israel having already passed, the things going on right now in the Middle East have nothing to do with eschatology. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Not a bit. Right. Um, and the, does that mean that Christ is not about to come back? No, I don't know. But the point is that the things predicted and promised uh, in the scriptures in relation to uh, the Jews and Israel and all those things have, have already happened. Right? Um, that, yes, we should feel sorry where there's tragedy and war and all those things. We should, you know, sympathize and and... You know, <clears throat> I would argue if we're going to help anybody, we need to help Christians. Uh, but, you know, just the, there's this, what, what was that thing? Uh, I saw it. I got to get the phrase because it's so good. And you see it all over the news. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party is unfortunately eat up with it. But the Zionist captivity of the church, right? There's this obsession with Israel, and it is totally grounded in dispensationalism, and even Reformed Christians can't see it. Do what? And they own the banks. I mean, you got to understand when it comes to the political parties. Oh yeah. It's not just the banks. They own the banks. Hollywood, everything. They own mm-hmm. it all. Yes, yeah. I've always kind of viewed it as just really. I mean, I can't distinguish between that and superstition, hmm. you know, because I used to just think about it that, you know, when I heard, when I heard, you know, uh, modern Christians talk about Israel, uh, when I was a kid, and some of you guys might remember this, there was a big fad on rabbit's foot, <laughs> lucky rabbit's foot. Oh, yeah. So they, so somebody came up with a great idea to make this little keychain out of a rabbit you know and it was you know it brought you good luck and so guys had you know all their car keys and everything like that on this little little lucky rabbit's foot and that's what i yeah yeah uh, that's what i used to you know i mean before I even before I even read the scriptures uh consistently i just thought why are they why why do people 
talk about Israel like it's some kind of lucky rabbit's foot. Mm -hmm. You know, if they, you know, you can't say anything disparaging or, you know, truthful or accurate. Yeah, so the implications would be like uh, in the Old Testament where it talks about the need to uh, uh, support Israel or whatever, right? Those kind of things. That that's not talking about national Israel today. Right. It's talking about the church of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, God's people. Right. Yeah. So, like, there's no lucky rabbit's foot. There's no special blessing from God if you send a red heifer to Jerusalem. Right. It's superstition. Mm -hmm. right? It's the doctrines and commandments of men. And if you take seriously, I think what. The New Testament especially makes abundantly clear about Christ fulfilling all these things and the priesthood and all that stuff. Like you realize how, not just how wrong it is, but like it's basically blasphemous mm -hmm. to to prop up this, the, the people, one of the two groups of people who crucified the Lord Jesus, right? The Romans had a role in it, as did the Jews. But also, did. But also, Pilate's a peculiar figure, but isn't he? Also, the great persecution of the church as well. Mm -hmm. well, well Pilate washed his hands. The Jews took full responsibility. Yeah. 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 So, which is such an interesting thing. Like it's like a uh, a flipping on its head of um, the uh, sprinkling of the blood in the covenant. Right, because remember how Moses would sprinkle the blood on the people mm -hmm. and all that, but here in the New Testament, you've got the sprinkling of the blood on the people, where they take the blood of Christ on their hands as guilt, rather than as blessing. Right? And it's just, um, and the like. You, you know, you read the Book of Acts. The chief enemy of Christians, right. it's not the Romans. I mean, the Romans are the political arm and power that the Jews manipulate to, to do these things. But the uh, unmistakable enemy of the people of God throughout history the people who are known like their very existence is marked by rejection of Jesus Christ like that is what it means mm -hmm. to be a Jew right? I think one thing Right. To carry forward. That's right. And so we don't look at them as, oh, well, we got to make sure we stand in solidarity because you can't stand in solidarity with somebody who's outwardly blaspheming God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of the, you know, the ways that the Lord used them, like we have the Old Testament scriptures because the Lord used uh, the Hebrews of old. He did. They wrote it, and he used them to preserve it. Right. And the early Christians, many of the writers, or all of the writers of the New Testament, were Hebrews, right? Um, Again, types meeting those showing with the like the Lord did choose them to also bring the Savior out of them. They did. So it's it's a matter of Him choosing the promised seed to come through there, having 
but it's not the fact that they were the prophecy themselves. Right. It's the prophecy that comes forth. And the fact that they weren't ever a pure blood race anyway, because they were mixed bag the whole time through. So it's not like, oh, well, the Jews, well, yeah, but you also got Moabite and Ishmaelite, and, you know, you got ten of those and seven of the other, so. <laughs> Uh, one final thing I'll say, and if you have anything else, be uh, bringing it to mind. Um, the point he makes on page 72 about our worship, uh, and talking about the better hope, and he says in that middle paragraph, by this better hope, we are drawing near to God. The vitality of this new access to God is emphasized by the use of a verb in the present tense. We are drawing near. We are continually coming near to the very presence of God through Jesus Christ, our priestly mediator, right? So thinking about uh, our worship and our sanctification and all those things on that, that spectrum, that it's a, a gradual drawing near to God. And uh, it, it's like, as if it were, he's dragging us to heaven, right? That we're on this progression that one day at our death, we will finally enter in. Uh, with our souls, and then one day when our bodies are raised, we'll fully enter in, uh, body and soul. So, any final thoughts? Thoughty thoughts? Questions? No? I would just remind you that uh, this makes reading the Bible so much easier. Uh, it just It just does. Right? When you realize that the people of God of old are your fathers in the faith, Paul calls them that in 1 Corinthians 10. Your fathers. And the Corinthians were not Hebrews. Right? Um, so the Old Testament is yours as much as the New Testament is. Mm -hmm. they, they could have been from the first disbursement. They could have been. They could have been. But probably not. Not all of them. <laughs> Yeah. But I wouldn't put it past him with that dude sleeping with his mother-in-law. <clears throat> I mean, it does sound pretty reminiscent too. Some Old Testament stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the modern ones, especially. Yeah, the modern ones. Yeah. Let me turn the the recording off before I ask this question.